Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. This is the resumption of the fly fishing for bass interview with Justin Anwill. Here we pick up on the feeding habits of the species and try to relate that to fly presentation. Picking up on the fact then that it's food over much of the summer that drives bass distribution, do you find early season when the crabs are molting that it doesn't pay to fish areas where crabs are going to be peeling due to the bass being preoccupied with them? Yeah, I think it's a very good point. I mean, a lot of people start, start chucking fluff at the sea in April and May and you know, more often than not you're going to fail. Well, in April and May and early June you've got cuttlefish season on the south coast which is a myriad of protein. All cuttlefish die after reproducing, and you've got a huge protein base of rotting flesh on the seabed. So presented with that, I would say that um, it's, you're going to be, and, and, and couple that up with lower water temperatures than higher water temperatures, you've got a readily available food source for a predator, and they're probably scavenging. And that season actually coincides with water temperatures building above 14 degrees. So above 14, 15 degrees, the body metabolism is increasing. The food source that was readily available in the cuttlefish season is gone and been eaten, scavenged, digested, and they start to motivate without a doubt. So, yes, I mean, if you're looking at crab and shrimp and bits and pieces like that, I think there is distinctly, I mean, you know, you can score very well in February and March in the harbour when the virus hatch. So if you get rag and lugworm hatches going on, which is a very early season injection of protein, you can suddenly find you've got a blitz on, which is very unusual for that time of year. But resident fish, fish which haven't migrated off or for whatever reason have reproduced and have come in early, whatever reason it is, but if they're resident and they're there, you can see that. So, you know, to, to put some worm flies on, uh, to figure of eight those worm flies or to hold those flies in suspension on a floating line with a leader length which is allowing you to do that, absolutely, you are effectively being asked to match the hatch of the marine environment. Now you've given us an insight into what could be good starting points or suitable areas to try. But what about unsuitable areas which may need to be avoided? It's strange actually, it's a very interesting question again because this is where we sort of start coming into a three-dimensional sport. Some areas are more productive in certain states of tide at certain parts of the lunar cycle than others. So when you sort of start to tell, what well, say, well where don't you bother, it's difficult. I would not bother if an area of water showed me no feature at all over a seven hour tide on ebb and flood I would say well ask yourself why you'd be there okay so what you're going to try and look for is an angle on where food is being presented and a flood mark at two hours might work tremendously well and then just die at three and three quarter hours flood because the tidal flow has changed and you may well find that a plus three hour flood mark doesn't have anything on it on the ebb at minus three why would that be? Well, in order for tidal stream to be the same on ebb and flood, and in our area, you know, we flood east and we ebb west, you'd have to look at the analogy of if you put a, I don't know, a 10 cubic metre granite stone in the middle of tidal flow, which was square on both sides, then you would expect the feature of current, if the current was the same, and it's not in our area because it's stronger on ebb as it is on flood, you'd expect if it was perfectly the same for it to show the same feature on the flood tide as it would on the ebb tide. However, if you sort of cut that cubic granite stone in half and made it into a right angle triangle, you're going to get tidal flow on the flat edge, on the right angled edge, than you would on the sloping side, which might explain why food holds there on a more aggressive structured side than a least aggressive structured side, if that explains that 
in that way. And the skill is only through a process of elimination is to, or having failed so many times on an area that is presenting you with such great opportunity on one side of the tide. So it's a difficult question to answer, but certainly in areas that are just devoid of any feature, especially if you're walking, you might just find this looks like a homogenous storm beach in Sussex. Well, even after you sat there and, and you know had a picnic on the beach with your wife or your girlfriend or your kids, and you're using that as a as a sort of like a reconnaissance area to take digital shots of, and you think, oh, that's just totally flat and homogenous, maybe not bother with it. But bear in mind, you may well find that on a very homogenous or say a, a beach that looks just very boring, if you get one or two features on it. Don't ignore it, because in an area where that is more prevalent in terms of its structure is more homogenous, you may well find it's the only area that fry holds on it. So the complete opposite occurs. A highly structured beach will dissipate food for it to be all over the place. And yet one area which might be a furrow that you think is, let's say, a, it's an area, which is, look at a delta, you might get one very small stream on a very big tide that is four or five or only six inches deep. And you may well find, well, that's interesting. And you look either side of you, for four miles either side of you, there's nothing going on at all. You may well find that that is the only place you should be putting your time, when to the naked eye it looks exactly the same as everywhere else. And now, the confidence side of things. Because like anything new, you shouldn't expect to hit the jackpot immediately. It usually takes time to build up a true picture. But equally, you don't want to be investing time where it might obviously be wasted. What then would be the more striking features to grab your attention? Water clarity is absolutely essential. Without that, I think you're going to be pushing it anyway. It doesn't matter if it's the best mark in the world. I mean, water clarity for me is one of the biggest things that has to be on my side in order to feel good about either leaving the dock or waiting, waiting the surf. I would, uh, look, so I would look for a clean water column. I would look for an area that offered me an opportunity on tidal stream in order to position myself into an area that was being deliberately interrupted by landmass to give a cross current, which allows you to dead drift a fly, which is one of the most killing methods we got. I know retrieve is the best retrieve. Once again, you're looking at food. So what happens in three or four knots of current, food gets tied up in it. You don't expect an inch long fry of mullet to have any control in three to four knots of current. So for you to be stripping that at Mach 3 above upstream is probably looking quite bizarre to a fish. But for it to be caught in tidal flow, might look a lot more natural. So, you know, it, once again, we're going into what you're looking for in terms of food and opportunities for food to be either housed or be, to be visiting at any one moment in time. So um, I think you've just got to be a little bit more perceptive about what an area is giving you. Also, there are some very visual opportunities that can present. It's necessary to have a certain amount of ornithology about you for a start. You know, the beach is alive. Certainly in our area, we've got little turns, and, um, and certainly the smaller bait is predated on by little turns and common turns and arctic turns, this sort of stuff, which are the really, you know, they're fork-wing birds. And if you understand which birds are working in an area and they're very, very high above the water column, you're more than likely going to find that it's a little bit like a transducer on the stern of a boat. The higher the bird, the lower the bait. The lower the bird, the higher the bait. It's increasing its area of vision the higher it goes, and they've got exemplary vision. So if you've got a lot of birds working very low, and they're almost swooping down and diverting their dive away from the water column, it's one of the biggest things that I've taught myself to, to do, because you can see a bass at maybe a mile, and people go, how the hell do you spot a bass at a mile? Well, you don't. You spot what's going on around the bass at a mile. 
And the best way to find out whether, because remember, a bird can be just taking bait off the water surface. Now, it could be a mackerel shoal that's pushed it up. It could be porpoises that have pushed it up. It could be, it, there might not be a predator there. But in order to find out whether the predator is there is to watch the bird that just diverts the dive away from the water column. And what it does at that moment in time, it's targeting a bait. It's just about to go in to take the bait out. And at the last second, it diverts the dive and re-orientates um, and basically ascends again to retarget. Well, it doesn't go in the water column if it doesn't have a better than average chance of taking out what it's expending energy to take out. What you might find is a bass has just taken the bait right in front of it. At the moment the bird diverts the dive, it's, it's shadowing the top water column with its wing beat, which if you're a predator, the predator interprets that as I'm getting taken out and the bass will dive. If the bass dives, it, it leaves a boil on the surface which mackerel don't necessarily do. I've never seen bass really jump, but they definitely do make holes in the water. And so, you know, you could be looking at birds diving, getting very excited, and you suddenly realise if you pan the water, you'll see breaks in the water column all over the place. Once you've done that, you need to then interpret which is the head and which is the tail of the shoal. In order to find that out, you've got to know which tide you're on, whether you're on an ebbing tide moving left to right or right to left. Once you've found which way the tide's working, you can intercept the flow of the food, because if you didn't do that, you might get four or five shots into the tail, take four or five fish out of the tail, and then suddenly realise they've all gone through you. Whereby if you hit the nose, then you've got the whole shell coming through you at any one time. It might offer you five or six, seven, maybe 20 different opportunities before they've gone through you. So visually be observant on the beach. Understand which birds are predating on what bait. Mainly turns on the intertidal zone. Small birds take small bait, big birds take big bait. Once you've found birds, you've probably found food. No guarantee that food is being predated on by a, a submariner. Watch the water column in terms of seeing what happens. Then interpret that in terms of where you need to position yourself to have the best opportunity to, in, to intercept the tidal flow. That's what I would do. And when out in the boat, do you always drift or might you occasionally anchor? No, you never anchor. I have to have an anchor on a boat. I mean, you had a problem last week, you know, we had, we had hydraulic failure on the boat and I had to anchor down. No, I would much prefer to drift through an area and then use my slug lines on my um, C120 Raymarine to exactly gauge my drift. It plots your actual drift. You then circumvent the shoal again. You go round in a half mile circle not to disturb you know, the shoal and then you do it again. But yeah, what, what you're doing if you anchor, I can understand anchoring over structured ground if you're using bait or you, you know, for bream fishing for instance, it's highly specific. Bass are moving, generally they're moving, okay? They will be resident on an area over a certain amount of time, but generally they're moving and you move with them because the tide's moving. You have to divorce yourself from the way of thinking of a traditional bait fisherman or sea angler. You are using fly fishing equipment and also I think that if you work with tide going with it, your lines work better. So for instance, you can imagine being anchored in one spot with four knots of current going below you. You're going to hard push yourself for 800 to 1,000 grain line to get down because the tide will push it up. If you're going with it, technically the tide will work better for you if you're going with it. It will also look more natural. I sort of like made uh, the analogy of stripping a small fly upstream at Mach 3, which you will be doing an awful lot of the time if you're anchored because you cut across the stream, you might mend a couple of times, and then you're going to be coming in up tight. So 
if you're working with it, you're actually allowing your kit to work and present itself in a much, much better way. So I, in order to slow me down even more, I use very big drogues on my boat if I'm not over foul ground. If I'm working in the harbour with, with people, I'm always using a drogue uh, to slow myself down, to put you on those areas whereby you might get four or five opportunities to take four or five fish and then we do it again. But yeah, an anchoring, no, I've never anchored. If, as a guide, you're trying a new area, or perhaps there's someone out there trying to get into bass fishing on their own, is it advisable to initially adopt a systematic approach? And if so, what might that be? Certainly a systematic approach is the only way to approach it. Once again, it's trial and error, isn't it? But what I would say is don't get to the mark on low water. Get to the mark before low water, for a start. So if you got there an hour and a half before low water, you're going to see the tide slowly losing momentum and offering you an opportunity of passage for a start. Because when it's all dry, you go anywhere, can't you? But when, it's, when you still have a neck of water that is becoming regressive, it's showing you what's left. It's showing you where not to walk, where you won't be able to get to, where you will be able to get to, but where you will be cut off at 45 minutes flood. So logically, I think it's safer to approach an area you're interested in fishing before the low water gauge and to see the environment drying out around you, which allows you to isolate the channels, which on flood may give you a problem. So when exploring, or if you're unsure just exactly where in the water column feeding fish might be, what line weight choice would you start with, and in which direction would you progress your search, either up or down? Basically we walk, don't we, on the springs and we drift it on the neaps. Very different patterns for very different techniques. Look at it this way round. I'm not saying you don't meet good quality fish on the intertidal skinny ground, okay, which is drying out and flooding. But skinny water is... What's the best way of explaining it? It probably holds a smaller class of fish because it holds less oxygen, which is less dense, which means that bigger fish can't breathe or are as comfortable in it, which is why bass is a deep water predator. It's deeper, it's denser, it holds more oxygen for them to breathe. Now, that's not to say that a big predator doesn't visit an intertidal zone. They do visit that ground and they do harvest that ground, but generally speaking, you need to match the hatch of what is in front of you. So if you use, let's say, small clouser minnows, I think is a perfect interpretation of the small fry that you're going to find in that ground. Also, remember, you're working an intermediate line. I wouldn't suggest you work a floating line on the intertidal zone because it, it gets bullied by the capillary action of the waves. It sits on the top water column, which means that if a wave is cresting slightly, it's going to push it back to you too quickly. I would always use a one inch per second minimum density line, which means it cuts through very, very slowly and the line stays where it cuts through. If you're using an intermediate line, you're using a line that is not being required to take the fly down because you're probably working ground that is no more than seven or eight feet deep maximum. You're walking in it, for instance, so it can't be any more than three feet deep on your belly button. So even if you're a good cast and you push it 100 foot, it's probably going to be no more deeper than you are, which means if you worked a seven to eight foot leader with a small clouser minnow, you've got the weight of the fly that will dredge the water column on your behalf. Unlike if you're drifting, you'll find that you need a heavier line to work the water which is deeper, more comprehensively. We wouldn't use weighted flies on heavy lines because the line is doing the job, not the fly. So you may well, if let's say you worked a standard three inch, four inch per second line, which would be an average line, and then you go into five, six, seven, eight inches per second. Well, because it's dumping at that sink rate, you might want to use just a, a deceiver or, or a flat wing, or I use a lot of cockroach patterns that I use for tarpon when I'm in the States fishing for different species, because the line's doing the job. 
But when you choose your flies, you choose it with your line, you choose it according to the light penetration of the water column. So for instance, in very, very bright conditions, you might find, because remember bass is generally looking up, which is why it's got a dark back and eyes on the top of its head, you may well find if you use a very light pattern in July at two o'clock in the afternoon, fish don't like, haven't got any eyelids, they don't like looking up. So you might want a better contrast fly. So I interpreted that when I was salmon fishing and I'd use darker patterns, the lighter the, or the greater the lighter penetration through the water column than I would do, let's say, a lighter pattern, which if you're looking at, a, let's say, a chartreuse or white pattern, which would be a standard uh, saltwater pattern here and abroad, you may well find that it mixes with the water column and light too aggressively. Remember, we're going back to the point where we're trying to find fish, but we're also trying to allow the fish to locate us give it a chance to find you and I think that uh, well, I mean I know I've seen fish coming into me at 25 to 35 feet they have found you if I'd have found that fish I'd have cast right on his nose so by definition it's found you so if you're wading it have a low density line on a weight forward weight forward because it's easier to cast we normally always got breeze you have a relatively long leader in relation to dredging lines which might I cut my leaders down to four and a half to five feet okay we're deep it's dark it's dense down there Bass aren't rude in coming forward. They'll eat a brick if you present it to them. And also the bigger flies are much easier to control on a shorter leader. I would say something about leader material. I tend to use very clear leader. Normally monofilament under 15 pound, which has got more stretch in it than fluorocarbon. Above 20 pound, fluorocarbon is absolutely fine. But make sure it is clear. Sometimes I've had clients in the past insist upon coloured leader material, which is fine if you're maybe using it in turbid conditions or coarse fishing or, you know, certainly the fishery that I have in Ireland. It's almost like a peaty clear stain. But sometimes the water column is so clean it actually attracts oxygen and it looks like an anchor chain going down. I'm not saying that the fish aren't always attracted to that, actually. I've had bass come in and try and take out crud that has been going through a weed bloom four feet up from the fly. They see something moving, there's a trigger point. But generally speaking, I think the, uh, the better the refractive index of your leader material, the better off you are. What then are your thoughts on rod choice for this particular type of work? Standard rod would be an 8 weight 9 foot fast taper. Fast because we're dealing with wind. Faster rods give you a better output with less effort if you know how to handle them. So it's a bit of a trade-off. If you're a novice you're probably going to find it more difficult to deal with a faster action rod. Use the analogy of a motorbike. If you're riding a motorbike, and you, you're probably going to be more successful as a motorcyclist, aren't you, if you graduate through the power ratio. So you start on a Fizzy 50, you go up to a 125, 250, 355, 50, 50, Honda Fireblade. If you went 125 after your test up to 950, you would kill yourself. Everything's different. Same product but you're not getting the most out of it, and it's probably dangerous for you. I danger in terms of you're not getting out what you can get out, because you don't know how to use it. So a mid-flex rod, certainly with a heavier line, if you're using a dredging line, will give you a better interpretation of your cast, I think, than a very quick rod on a very, very heavy line. The better you are technically, I'd say, the quicker you go because it will give you, you know, much greater output for less effort. If you're not good, technically, I would say to go for a mid-flex rod. Don't spend a fortune, because you'll be probably eBaying that stuff before too long, because you'll want to... The deal on the foreshore is, work less hard for more. Don't be knackered. You shouldn't be knackered coming in after six or seven hours of casting, because don't get me wrong, you are casting. 
because you're forced to cover ground very comprehensively. So the less you cast, the more you fish. The more you cast, the less tired you get. Better, faster action rods will definitely give you that as a formula. But whether or not you are able to deal with that, only you can tell me that. And would you advise carrying a range of AFTMA weights of lines? If you're using an AFTM rated 8 weight rod, which would be a standard piece of equipment for us, we would use naturally a weight forward tapered line, and we would want to weight that, so an 8 weight rod would attract an 8 weight line. Many of my reels, they've got various lines on them, and according to what the wind conditions are like, if it's windy, I'll just put plus 1 on it. Every rod has a standard deviation, or a, it has the ability to be able to handle very easily two lines heavier and two lines less. The most important thing for a client to understand is if you're loading a rod up with a line heavier, so let's say I was using a 9 foot 8 weight fast taper rod and the wind was up and I wanted to put a 9 weight intermediate line on to go and approach the beach, you are effectively overstressing the carbon graphite material of the tip if you pick up the required amount of line that it's gauged for, which is 30 or 32 feet, uh, because you're picking up physically more weight with the tip. All you have to do is to pick up less line which means you're compensating. So let's say, I don't know, an 8 weight might be 220 grains of weight. A 9 weight at 32 feet would be maybe 240, so you're overstressing it by 20 grains of weight. In order to negate that, pick up 28 feet, not 32 feet. It, in, in, if, if, you wanted, if you didn't have an 8 weight line, you think, oh, I've only got a 7 weight line, I've only got an 8 weight rod. Well, you've got to pick up more to load the rod. Generally, let's load a rod according to its AFTM rating, and a weight forward will help you cast. And, and it's not about presentation. So you don't need a double taper line. Shooting heads, if you can handle it, absolutely. Loads of reels and minor shooting heads for those guys that can handle it. Are you getting more for less? But as starting, let's use a weight forward, eight weight, saltwater line. Remember, saltwater is denser, so the sink rate is slower on a freshwater line used in the sea. That's the only difference. You've got a plasmacide coating, which will probably be slightly thicker because it's a very robust line used in a very harsh environment. And those lines are developed to be abused. But generally speaking, a 3 IPS saltwater line is sinking quicker than a 3 IPS freshwater line. What then would you suggest as being the best range of sink speeds and capabilities to cover all potential situations? Wading, intermediate one inch per second. Nothing too special. Fish are going to be, you know, in an area of water or a water column, probably, like I said, no more between six and seven feet deep, if that. So what a pleasure it is to work with a relatively light line density of sinking and also you're using smaller flies like Klaus and Minas, which have got a dumbbell head they're doing the work for you on the drift it depends on how deep your ground is I mean we, we can work 30 to 40 feet of water and if you're going to have any chance of getting down in 30 to feet of water in the right time period on the drift with wind on your back even if I'm helming you down you've got to have a heavy line but a general benchmark would be 3 to 4 IPS inches per second weight forward That'll do it fine, absolutely fine, no problem at all. If you want to really go dredging it, then we've all got the Jim Teeny dredging lines, but they're not actually very pleasurable to use. And what, from your experience, would make the contents of a good bass fly box? There's a number of pans you probably don't want to leave home without, I would say, uh, with my experience. Klaus and Minnows, red and white, black, grey and white, chartreuse and white, standard patterns according to light penetration, so you go down there, remember the light will change according to the cloud, according to the day, that change over time. Don't just, you know, sort of like, you know, sieve the water for six hours, one pattern. 
for instance, many occasions that we've, we've been working a pattern, we've, you know, we've changed and suddenly black is definitely doing some damage. But it's only Klaus and Minnows in four different shades in two different sizes. There was one occasion last year where it took us an hour and a half to match the hatch and I was struggling to find a fly small enough. And this was with quite average size fish, about two and a half to three pound. And they had been preoccupied with very small 15 millimeter bait that they're trapped in. And I found two great, what I call great ghosts, which are gray and white Klaus and Minnows of a number six, which is only 15 mil long. We had 125 fish on those two patterns before we didn't get any more hookups. Lucky we had those two small patterns. So a couple of, I mean, I, I would say four, four colours in two different sizes in the Klaus and Minnows. And then um, in the dredging section, I start at a 2.0 and I go out to a 4.0 hook, uh, which would on hackle size be anywhere between 3 and 5 inches in length when we're working offshore. Bait tends to be bigger without a shadow of doubt. And once again, you're trying to match the hatch, but certainly a, a deceiver, a flat wing, cockroach patterns, which are the tarpon patterns, which have jungle cock tied into their asses, which are fantastic. When you look at cockroach patterns with jungle cock tied into the hackle, it looks like tiger prawn. It looks like crustacean. And the grizzle hackle is, the, is a squirrel tail, as far as I can tell, which almost inflates the whole pattern. It gets saturated and it pulses. When you see a traditional cockroach coming through the water, it looks a lot larger in the water than it does because the hackle is so fine that it looks like a real meal ticket. And um, they would be certainly some of the patterns that I would feel naked if I was accessing a market and suddenly I'd forgotten my crustacea box or indeed my, my tarpon box. What would you advise in terms of line sink and lure retrieve rates? Well, let's start with the strip rate. Let's not see any nymph fishing. Let's not see any figure of eating it. Generally speaking, a, a bass is an aggressive predator and uh, you should be um, trying to escape from its predatory path, not oblivious to the point where it's there. So I would say a very fluid strip rate of a full metre, metre and a half. So when, when you are stripping, let's have your tip down and let's see you go straight up to the guide ring and straight back five to six feet but keeping contact with the fly what you want to do is you have you know you, you need constant tension on your line and move your tip around with a kind of tidal drift so you're constantly in contact with the fly you should be pointing your rod tip directly at the fish's mouth which is why we don't spoil them on the leader material so if i'm using 18 pound monofilament it's got an amount of elasticity in it the reason why we're choosing that is because if a fish hits you when you're in the middle of your retrieve it's hitting you at the weakest point of your leader there is no give in fluorocarbon. It's already been pre-stretched and hardened. It does a great job, but when you get a bang, what you tend to find is you've got a break. And some retailers are very unscrupulous about how long they keep it on the shelf. It gets very brittle under ultraviolet light. So I've always had a preference to using monofilament up to 20 pound, which has probably got about three millimeters of elasticity left in it. So when you get hit, you've actually got a rubber band shock leader. Above 20 pounds doesn't seem to make any difference. It's so strong anyway. But when I'm saying point your tip on your retrieve straight at the fish, if you lose the angle of that and the fly comes round and the fish hits you, remember the rod tip is acting as a shock absorber. Now, you're going to hook the fish because your hook is sharp, but you're not going to embed the barb into its jaw, which is bone. So although you're fishing directly at the tip, pointing at the fish, Every time the fish impacts you, 
what you're going to find it will shake its head very angrily at you you are at risk from breaking but every time it shakes its head at you it's embedding the barb into its own mouth which is why fly rodders always keep their tips down very similar to salmon anglers don't strike the fish don't put any compression on your rod wait for the fish to shake itself on and when you feel that it's been shaking itself on for five or six seconds take the tension up and then you've got the shock absorbing material of the carbon graphite which is then doing the job if you do it too prematurely you'll have the fish on for 10-15 seconds and it will be a memory I will guarantee you it will shake the, the hook out so the strip rate is fluid and the direction of the strip rate is also imperative and remember your kit is fairly robust we're not talking about using three or four pound leader material we're talking about 15 to 20 pound leader material so it's on your side to start with and for the weaker casters out there who still nonetheless might like to give it a go there is salvation on offer there too we try and help the client get the most out of his day what tends to happen is the client will come out and he will say to you if it's a new client I've been fishing for a long time I'm absolutely fine he'll then go out with another person who's been fishing for a long time in our environment and suddenly realise that technically he's not proficient that client then revisits you and says can you teach me what that guy was doing please and there's nothing you can do to convince a client that he will find it difficult it's almost a I have to experience a failure in order to understand how good or bad or different I am when it comes to the casting courses they are purely double hauling we tend to layer up the course to the point we build your confidence with the correct kit so you I mean you're coming from a trout background you're probably using five or six weights max if you're a reservoir guy seven weight you're on the sea with me you're going to be using an eight weight which could be a a bit of a shocker for you anyway so the kit's bigger larger more heavy but i would want to try and build your line speed up and your tip speed to the point you can project a better than average line so that the courses are there to layer up your confidence and for you to understand exactly how to do that of which we have a large area of ground it occurs at my home address in a paddock over lawn grass in a controlled environment so you haven't got to worry about wind and tide so if you suddenly realize okay fine no no, no I, I need to know how to double haul and it is a bit of a eureka moment when you double haul because it's not natural to do the compression on the non-rod hand really it's a question of um you're getting you up to the point where you're proficient to go and approach the foreshore safely and to get the most out of that so double hauling is a specialist area that we try and convert to uh, other people understanding the courses take anywhere between I say three and four hours. Most people would say, okay, fine, I have a rate card of X and we do it per hour. You can't actually, the problem is with double hauling, you've got to embed the muscle memory. And the worse it is, the longer you've been fishing. You've got to, I've got to unwind you like a bad golf swing and then I've got to bolt you back up. Now I have a hybrid cast because I'm a saltwater fly rodder. But if you're a total novice, you're much easier to teach than you are somebody who's been fishing for 30 years because all the muscle memory is set and therefore it's all embedded on you anyway so the first part of the call, you might find there's an hour and a half unwinding you there's another hour and a half of, of, of winding you back up and there's another hour at the end that embeds it the guy that's never picked up a fly rod before is usually done in two hours so once again it's a loaded question which comes down to how much you've done yourself when approached by me regarding extra layers of protective legislation for bass in my particular area our Regional Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority Enforcement Director said he had a bit of a dilemma at the moment in that while rising sea temperatures are bringing about more spawning success for bass and therefore there are more of them about, unfortunately very few are making it through the ranks to become breeding fish themselves before being caught. So as a man who probably sees more bass than most, what's your take on both the current situation and the future of the species generally? It's a bugbear of mine as a 
an IGFA guide who has made a living off the sea through conservation and catch and release for you know nearly 10 years, that I don't care what people say about we have increasing water temperatures by an average two and a half degrees, it's a more conducive environment for which bass can reproduce, their stocks are healthy, all those things are correct. The North Sea is warmer now than it was 25 years ago. You can see that because the line that was drawn across from Lincolnshire Wash to Pembrokeshire used to be the northern line for bass migration. You're now catching them in Peterhead. You're now catching them, I was on the northwest tip of Scotland in February and talking to guys that just started the sea trout fishing season up there and they said we enjoy the bass sport, we never used to have it five years ago. Now we have great sport on that size and those, those fish are doing much better. So that's a perfect example of the migration of bass around the British Isles is far more comprehensive than it used to be localised to the south. The basis of that could be so seriously enhanced if the laws in terms of regulating what can be taken were moved to the point where that fish has the chance to reproduce. If you don't allow a species to reproduce, you will exhaust the species. I don't care how well it can reproduce. If it's not allowed to reproduce, it is pointless. So bass are allowed to be commercially taken at 36 centimetres. If they're saying that commercial stocks of bass are plentiful at the moment, well, then by definition, you know they won't be in the future because the stock is not being able to be replenished. So the first thing that needs to be done is they need to either rest a fishery or have designated areas whereby fish are not able to be caught at certain times of the year during reproduction. And secondly, they need to increase the gill mesh size to the point where you can't target a fish under 36 centimetres, or if indeed you do, it can escape. Because the fish doesn't get any sexual organs until it's, I think, 42 to 45 centimetres in length. So... 9 to 10 centimetres, well, what's going to be 9 centimetres of growth? Fish are mature at 7 years, so allowing a fish to be taken at what would be 3 to 4 years doesn't seem to make any sense to me. After that, the argument is superfluous to the outcome. And this is the thing, and, you know, we have to really come to a decision on that very first point, which is, well, in order for us to have a sustainable fishery, you either need to allow the fishery to rest or you work within the parameters of that particular species. If you're working within the parameters of a particular species, you have to let it reproduce. If you don't fish, you are letting it reproduce and you are letting it grow without impacting the fish stock. We saw that in the cod wars. You saw Scandinavian countries withdraw from Europe because the fishery is that important to them not to share and they harvest that like farmers harvest the land. They rotate their areas very, very well, and they also rest their fisheries. And unfortunately, bass doesn't even have a closed season. There are very big hauls of bass being taken this year from what I have found out through very reliable sources. And you would expect, I mean, even a roach has a closed season in running water in a river, you know. And I, I can't, for the life of me, understand why we seem to want to impact what is regarded as one of the best sport fish in our sea, in our area, which by definition really can offer you so much or offer the sport fishermen an opportunity to enjoy. The cost benefit in terms of the revenue received is far greater as a sport fisherman than it ever would be as a food source, coupled out with the fact that you can produce as much bass under the farmed environment as you can. That the argument in terms of depleting your natural stock of a marine environment seems to be far more diluted than it would do if you understood what was going on around you. And although sport fishing in the UK and the sea is, is relatively new, and if you went three and a half thousand miles away out to the eastern seaboard, 
Connecticut, for instance, and Florida and Massachusetts have, I think, in excess of 60,000 full-time guides. When we travel, we spend thousands of pounds and dollars introducing people to mature fisheries. And they protect their fishery because they understand exactly, in actual fact, I think the sport fisherman lobby has a far greater voice over the marine resource than the commercial. I'm not saying that that is necessarily what is needed, but what I am saying is a fair voice in relation to the resource, in relation to the contribution. And unfortunately, we're stuck in this agriculture, horticulture, marine culture, add so little to the net contribution on GDP that it is not important enough to spend ministerial time on a resource that doesn't generate the tax receipts. My opinion would be, why have you to exhaust something on your watch, whether you're harnessing the revenue out of it or not? I think that's a bad day all round for for, for anyone to turn around and to be ignorant either about the species or indeed only wear up significantly in relation to its revenue stream. By a complete coincidence, in around six weeks' time, I have a meeting with Chris Wynne, who's a regional director of the Florida Fisheries and Wildlife Commission, to learn how Florida pulled itself back from the brink of collapse to become the world's leading sport fishery. And as with this recording, I'll be putting it out as a podcast which promises to make interesting listening. Yeah, it will be, and if you talk to the guys off the eastern seaboard now, they'll, they'll be quite happy to tell you that they're catching less 40-pound fish. Mm. They're catching less 50-pound fish. Minimum size has come off from 38 inches down to 28 inches in the last six years. You know, so once again, you're going into the realm of we're becoming reactive, not proactive, about what we are required to take. And and once again, and and that is occurring in a very mature fishery, whereby seven years ago we were targeting a 30-pound bass on the fly. We would see them quite regularly. The purpose of the trip was to hook up to a personal best and a very good quality female fish. They're already saying, you know, we're just not seeing 30 and 40 pound fish anymore. And in order to allow that food product to be exported to New York State, they're bringing that MLS size down continually, not year after year, but it's getting to the point where it's not as bad as it was in the 70s when they put the moratorium on the fishery. But they're... Once again, we're not learning from past experiences. And, and, and I think that it's um, just one of those things that generally man does. Quite literally, on our doorstep now, what do you make of the Irish effort? I'm not certain to what extent they've gone in terms of bag limits, slot limits and close seasons, but it has to be better than what we're doing, or more to the point, not doing here in the UK. I think they've done a superb job at restricting one bag limit, secondly, allowing you to fish at a certain time of, of the year. And once again, we're finding that uh, Ireland is a, is a big magnet for people very serious about it, you know. And then the thing that you've got to look at is that we could so easily have this here, and, and the amount of money that people spend stays in the UK. Why would you want to travel to the, the Irish coast? Because what people seem to not understand is that if you're a fisherman and you're a sport fisherman, what happened to me was, well, okay, if the fishery that I'm based on doesn't offer me the same opportunity, I travel. I don't pack up my bags and go, it's not worth fishing anymore. I just spend more money going to pursue it. Now that is a, something I think has been grossly ignored in the UK, that if fishing is what you do, it's exactly the same as if you play golf and they said, OK, fine, well, sorry, but you know, we need the land for the car parks and to build on, and there's no golf in the UK, you could just go to Portugal. You wouldn't stop playing golf. If it's your love, you just pursue it. And Ireland, we, we're seeing now you know, many, many people 
who will take their annual or biannual trip to Ireland to fish for very good quality average fish now because they are going some way to preserving the amount of fish that someone can take and when you can fish them and the inshore fishery limit, which um, is a fantastic positive contribution to making a fishery more sustainable and we should uh, adopt the same thing. What then, from your experience, is the future for UK bass? Certainly my job as a guide is to educate and um, don't underestimate how much ignorance is involved with fishing. And it's also a generation thing, remember. For instance, even my father, my father would be of the argument that if we go fishing for bass and he catches a double-figured female, then I will pay for his charter. And he says, well, why? They're so rare. I hardly catch any. Well, you just answered your own question, Dad. They're not there because you took in the 50s and 60s and 70s and you did not replenish. So it's a question of educating people to the point where they understand that we may have seen those days of plenty. Now, most people make the assumption that you know, life is on a linear curve and it gets better and easier and quicker and we earn more money over term. What you might find is that those days are gone. We're seeing that in our environment all the time. Your pound goes less far. We have you know, stagflation in the economy. We're tending to work harder for longer for less. When will you wake up to the point where this is a result of whatever the result was, whether it's overconsumption, whether it's too much spending. In the fishing environment, it's highly obvious to me because I work there on a daily basis. So the first thing I want to do is to educate people to the point where, okay, fine, understand your quarry species, understand what drives the fish, understand which fishes are taking fish, which fish you are able to take. And without that, then unfortunately, you know, you're, you, you know, you're limited in terms of, you know, so you've got to reach out to people and say, oh, by the way, do you realise that that fish, although legal, is immature? If somebody then turned around to me and said, well, I, I'm, is it against the law? I said, no, 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 no. But, you know, there are certain things that are made law that don't make any sense. So at that point, you need to make your own value judgment. And by educating people about that, they've got a better chance of making a better value judgment on their own terms than it is to say, okay, fine, well the, law allow, well, the law allows you to do a lot of things that don't make sense in our community at the moment. So they're not always right, and they're not always for the general net benefit going forward. So I think that would be my job. Not to say yes or to no, but to provide the amount of information to an individual who can then step back from a pressurised environment and say, in actual fact, I don't want to take that fish. There's no point in taking that fish. Now, some people would turn around and say, well, you are only one of millions of people and the damage is done on the 10-metre fleet, on the 20-metre fleet. Well, there are millions of anglers, and I think that you all have a, a voice. I think you all have a net contribution to your sport. And to turn around and say, well, if I'm the only person that's doing it, but Joe, my right, has just taken 50. But then you stand on your own two feet and make your own value judgment. Don't be afraid of what other people do. As a character, I've always looked at the adage that if somebody is copying me then that's a compliment but I've never been afraid to stand on my own two feet and say okay fine well this is what I'm doing then so I think that that comes about because either one you read and you want to know so you, you, you know your, your appetite for learning is more than some you don't have to have a degree education to be informed you can pick up a paper 50p you can go to a library. If you want to know, you can understand. And, and my job, if, if you stumble across it, is to try and point you in a direction whereby it's not insisted upon. I always say to my clients, if somebody says to me, am I allowed a brace of fish, Justin? I said, yes, but let's choose that brace of fish, shall we? Why? Well, because that fish there that you want to take hasn't reproduced. That fish that you took was five and a half pound, probably a female. So let's try and measure on the gauge on the boat, one that's about 45 to 47 and that gives you two perfect fillets for dinner. 
And if you want ten of them, have you ever known anyone eat bass for a week? There seems to be a sort of like sometimes a red mist that comes down because it's very plentiful that we're good to go. You've seen that in black bream fishing an awful lot. People come back with bin liners. What are you going to do with it? You just want it, don't you? My, I want the trophy. I want to see the photograph. I want the memory. I mean, I love fish as well. But let's temper the consumption according to what we've got presented to us. And I think that as a guide or as a teacher, you've got a better chance of understanding it with that person who is a specialist in their trade. Do you feel that there is more of a will, despite what some commercial fishermen and legislators think, for additional protective bass legislation now in the UK? I work and I am called throughout the winter months by specific skippers on the 10 metre fleet who use the tramway nets, especially for Dover Sole in the area and place and stuff like that. Occasionally I'm asked to help them out and uh, I will offer to help them out. Um, and great this year to know that um, many of those skippers are putting the, the good quality female fish that are caught in those nets when they come up alive because they're only laid for 12 hours so you're picking them up the next day. And was witness to mid-teen fish going back alive on the inshore fishery within the three or four mile limit, which is fantastic because they regard that stock as brood stock and it's very little point in shooting yourself in the foot. I myself believe that um, there should be, and I think it probably is more ignorance than anything else, people seem to just make the assumption that fish grow at a generic rate. I mean, bass are particularly slow growing. Maybe, I think they put on more weight than people think they put on, but they, are, they go back in condition during our harsher winter months. So because the way you see them predate would suggest that they may well put on a, a pound of weight a year, you know, but they may well go back 50% on condition when they're remaining fairly dormant. So it's almost like a hibernation. Because I can't really believe that a fish, the amount that eats, although some people would say it's negated by the amount of effort it goes into catching whatever it's consuming. So there's a risk-reward there. But I think there should be a mid-gauge without a shadow of doubt. I mean, I can't understand why... The commercial MLS size, the minimum landing size for this particular species, is below its maturity gauge for a start. It seems incredible um, to me that it, all the scientific rationale and the stipulations commercially are based upon a fish being legal at 36 centimetres. So if you consider that even conservatively, that fish needs to get to... 42 to 44 centimetres in length so you're asking for the fish to grow by another 7 to 9 centimetres in length before it has sexual maturity I don't think it's rocket science to understand that if you continue to take from a gene pool which is not replenished especially with a slow growing species that you are going to be culling a logarithmic effect of that gene pool and you will expire that species and the basis of the law is on the foundation of 36 centimetres which means that everything else above it must be wrong, by definition. Every law that is made based upon that assumption has to be wrong. Because if you did that, and I think I sometimes use the analogy of, I don't know, agriculture, which I'm close to, or horticulture, if you continually take and produce organic crops on a field without top dressing, nitrogen dressing, or managing a rotation whereby you are replenishing the top soil, your yield will reduce over term. There's no doubt about that. And for whatever reason, we don't seem to practice that when it becomes a fishery, which is an aqua marine environment. And um, I think the first thing that needs to be recognised is that that law needs to change. I'm very, very pro catch and release. Not just catch and release, but understanding what part of the gauge you take for harvesting. Um, and if it's done properly, you know, it is sustainable. If it's not done properly, then you will have a 
reactive approach to the demise in a fishery, which I think at the moment we're not even at stage two because certain areas are doing better than others. But generally speaking, over the last nine to ten seasons, I've seen a dramatic reduction in fish working an area which is probably 15 square miles. Now, that's highly specific to my area, but I'm a specialist in my area, so I think something needs to be dramatically done, and I think the basis of uh, the law needs to change, and the first thing that needs to change is you have to get that fish into being able to reproduce, because being taken before it can reproduce, I don't think is rocket science to understand what will happen after that point. And what of fly fishing for bass as a growth pursuit here in the UK? I think we're at risk on fly fishing. Remember, fly fishing as a technique is technically more demanding than picking up a lure rod. You get a lot of father and son teams. Remember, the son is the extension of the generation, which is a hard thing. I mean, I can't entertain anyone under 18 years old, but, you know, I have plenty of people that say, you know, I'd love to bring my boy out. He's about as big as an 18-year-old, but he's a junior at 16. My um, insurance doesn't allow me to do that. But what I would say is, in order for you to create the demand for the future, you have to entertain and be successful in that younger generation. And if it's coveted in fly fishing, the techniques and the requirement to be successful, as you know, children have a smaller concentration level than, let's say, an adult. And therefore, if we don't do what we can to bring that youth into that environment... For them to hook up, because the best advert in the world to get somebody into fishing is not to insist that they go fishing, but to get them hooked up. And that's a hard job. Whereby lure fishing, not only is it technically easier, you're also covering more ground. So I'm leaning towards, in harsher conditions, having a lure rod on a boat, because I'd rather you have an average day on the lure than a really hard day on the fly. And to bring that, that interest through to get people in their early 20s who are fishing already and to show them how we do this on the fly. But you remember, fly fishing should be lent to... Um, it's, it's a skill set that is acquired, which is better in some conditions than others. But to be a purist, which, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm tagged as a purist. Don't get me wrong, I love, I love catching a double figure bass on the fly. It's a hell of a thrill. But not to be disparaging and not to cover the information that allows you to become technically proficient. Education... Teaching people to say, come on in, the water's absolutely fine. Let me help you along the way because no one was there to help me. You know, there's not a lot of information there. I'm your information. Let me take you by the hand and don't worry about asking a dumb question because you're probably the person who asked it that the other two were thinking about asking but didn't. And if you ask, you're going to receive some information that might help you walk down that road to be successful. So being open in terms of your information, open about your skill set and to not covered information which I know that many people feel that that fly fishing fraternity is guilty of doing they're embarrassed to ask uh, they're embarrassed to get involved because it's always been perceived as slightly high and mighty as a medium for contact fish you know we go back to the salmon fishing and the sea trout fishing and it's still there that, that it's endemic and it's wonderful for me my reward is to see somebody who didn't know whether they would enjoy it didn't know how to ask have the strength of character to ask and to see them walking down the beach in a pair of waders or a pair of shorts with an eight weight under their armpit with a t-shirt on and enjoying the coast is a successful formula for me because that's when I get the payback and you could have taken that person out from not having a pursuit remember the coast is free 
You don't have to, you know, spend hundreds of pounds a day chasing salmon about. It is free. It's free for you to use, and, and to be able to harness that resource well is a very responsible job, which should be encouraged under the right parameters. And to those people who would like to try fly fishing or already do so in fresh water, what would you like to say to them? The best client is a reservoir trout guy. He's got the best technical skill set. He's probably used to a big pond anyway. He's used to a, an amount of exposure to breeze. Uh, he's using the right rod, which would be relatively fast taper, more probably a seven weight, and it's less of a shock for him when he walks onto the beach. The worst guy is a salmon fisherman, actually, because he's lazy, and the kit does a lot of the work for him. He's not used to the work rate. Remember, we sieve water. We drown flies and we sieve water, and, and there are times when it happens in front of you that you can pick your moment to target a fish. If they're busting up, usually on slack water, high or low, whatever they're doing, you get an opportunity which is very exciting. And then you can say, okay, fine, no, 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 hang on a second, I'm good to go. Beautiful. Other times, when they've sunk into the water column and they're staged up, how else do you know where they are? Unless you're putting your line through it. So it's fairly aerobic what you do. And to sieve more than you don't is going to yield you a better return on your time. And a salmon fisherman has big kit, generally, double-handed, whether it's a 13-foot 6 or even a switch rod, up to a 16-foot spay rod. And he's definitely not used to the work rate. In exactly the same way as somebody who works very small chalk streams and is used to a 2 to a 4 weight, is not used to that work rate either. Doesn't mean to say they can't adopt it, but they should be familiar with what is expected of them because you get out exactly what you put into it but I would say look come on in give me a shout email me or phone me I'm always here it's easier for me to get you technically up in the lower part of the season if you said okay fine I think I need to do how, how do we do this double hauling it's easier to get me in March, April and May than it is from June through to October when, when the fish are in really and what a lot of people have done is they've contacted me and said, right, okay, fine, I want to select a date. Can we bring back the casting course seven days so it's fresh in my mind? Which is not a bad way of doing it. So they double book you. They book you for a tide. Then you work it back so they meet you seven days. You do a full course with them. They go away. They've got three or four days. They might get a chance to, you know, practice in, in amongst that week. And then they're with you rather than have a three-month gap between it. So while retirement might not have been geared up to targeting new business opportunities, and certainly not fishing, it looks to have actually turned out that way. Yes, I mean, you know, I was at a stage in my life at um, 35 years old where I was extremely busy and um, had a young family, and I was seeing less of my family. And, and I think as you have, you know, family, it becomes significantly more important to understand why you have family. And, and I was in a very privileged position whereby I could afford to take... A step out of that high octane environment, having worked in it from university, to enjoy my family, to live in a better quality of environment. I didn't want to bring my children up in London. And from that developed something which was always with me, which was, I'm passionate about what I do. I hope that people enjoy what I do when I'm working with them. The business wouldn't survive if you weren't passionate. Many people have said to me, and I've forgotten more faces than I've met, the one thing that strikes or struck me about you was your enthusiasm for your sport. Um, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's doing what we do or I was enthusiastic about everything I've done. And you get the best out of it because you're like that. And people are naturally magnetised towards you if you're, and they know when you lie. You can't lie to yourself. If you're not passionate about what you do, it will leach through at some point. And the success is 
commensurate with that enthusiasm. So the business evolved organically because of that. I mean, I'm a businessman anyway. I've integrated my business into as many parts of my sport as I possibly can. It's a very, very difficult line of business to make any money. And I would honestly say to you that if you want to, I would say you, you make money to go fishing. It's very difficult to go fishing and make money at the same time. But there are compensations for that. And, and my compensation was a lot more time in an environment which I was privileged enough to be brought up in on the coast. Uh, I enjoyed it, and, and my ambition was to introduce it to as many people as I could and will meet. And the day that my passion fades is the day that I don't step on my boat. So, um, yes, it's been a great business decision. It's been a very poor financial decision, but it's been a, um, there are rewards over and above that. And it's, it's true today, and uh, you know, I, I'm as enthusiastic about it, um, and we're still chasing a £20 fish around, you know. It's been fun, and, and that is very important to me as well. My thanks then to Justin Anwell, not only for taking the time to talk through what for him has been a massive fact-finding mission, but for sharing it so freely and generously with us all here today. Mm-hmm.